The death of a parent can lead a child and a family down a dark path that can have tragic long-term effects. Thanks to vision, commitment, expertise, and a Godwink that brought two like-minded people together, Denver-based Judy's House pierces this darkness with the light of innovative and loving grief support and therapy. After 20 years of aiding young people and families in Colorado and across the country, Dr. Brooke Gracie joins us to reflect on how this groundbreaking organization became a nationally recognized leader in its field and the new frontiers ahead of it on this episode of Making Our World Better. Welcome to the Making Our World Better podcast, where you will find motivation and encouragement through lively conversations with inspirational people who every day are making our world a better place. Now, here's your host, Jay Clark. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jay Clark, and it is a gift to host a conversation with Dr. Brooke Greasy, co-founder of Judy's House and the JAG, Judith Ann Greasy Institute. Brooke is a licensed clinical psychologist who has devoted her career to promoting resilience and growth in children and families who have experienced loss, trauma, and adversity. In 2002, Brooke and her husband, Brian, Denver Broncos Pro Bowl QB at the time, co-founded Judy's House in memory of Brian's mother, who died when he was 12. Since then, the Family Bereavement Center has provided free care, free care to more than 12,000 young people and caregivers, reaching many thousands more nationally through the research and education initiatives of the JAG Institute. The nonprofit is dedicated to elevating childhood bereavement as a public health priority and ensuring equitable access to support that prevents complications of unaddressed grief. Can't wait to touch on that. Brooke spearheaded this organization's research and trauma-informed programs and served as CEO before transitioning to the board of directors. She is co-author of Pathfinders, a 10-week group curriculum, and regularly publishes and presents nationally. She currently serves on the governor's Colorado Behavioral Health Task Force Children's Subcommittee, the mayor's Denver Education Compact. Denver Public Schools Foundation Board, Mental Health Consortium, and Lida Hills for Human Resilience Advisory Board. Hope I said that one right. And she was recently honored at the 2019 Alliance for Children's Grief Excellence in Service Award. She earned her PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder and is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado. But perhaps most importantly, she's an artist and a mother of two teenagers and a miniature golden retriever. And good Lord, with all those boards, I don't know how she has time to think. But Brooke, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me here, Jay. This is a delight. And and thank you for your podcast. I think it's such a great idea to shine a light on people who are doing good work and making the world a better place. It's so needed. Thanks. Thanks. And when I came up with the idea, you guys were one of the first ones I thought of. But when you say family bereavement center, that does not do Judy's house justice. So how would you describe Mm -hmm. Judy's house to somebody that doesn't know anything about it? Oh, you're right. Those words don't quite quite do it, do they? Um, I think in its at its heart, Judy's house is a safe, comfortable place where members of our community of all types, all walks of life, can come to connect with others who have also experienced a death loss. Everybody Mm -hmm. who comes for our, as you said, free programs has experienced the death of someone important in their life. Um, It's it's mostly 
children ages three to 25. So up to those young adults um, who have had a parent die or a significant caregiver or a sibling. Um, And then their parents or caregivers who are caring for them. It's a, a whole family model so that everybody can be seen in the same place at the same time, which is so critical to making sure that we reduce barriers to care for families who are needing support. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what is the toll or the cost of unaddressed grief, especially in in kids? I think we talk a lot about the cost of inaction with childhood bereavement. That's part of Mm -hmm. why um, with Jagans too, we've really been working to elevate this issue as a public health priority, as you said, because we know that when unaddressed um, grief and trauma associated with the death loss can, can um, not only disrupt a child's life, but potentially derail their development. There are so many stressors that come with a death in a family. They often have to move or they've had to change schools Mm -hmm. and they lose touch with friends or family members who are part of their support system. And they might be struggling with really overwhelming emotions, um, disruptions to their sleep or their health, their eating, um, having trouble concentrating at school, all of these things that can really get in the way for a kid. And then the whole family system can be disrupted by a significant death loss, um, which is why we wrap around that whole family and really not only help the kids with coping skills, but have the kids teach their parents and caregivers, those coping skills, get that dialogue out on the table for the whole family and really empower those parents and caregivers with skills for parenting a grieving child, because we know we're only with them, you know, an hour or so for 10 weeks, but they will be together as a family for the rest of their lives. And so we're giving them those skills and and making it, um, making it safe and okay to talk about these really hard topics and, and find ways to navigate their loss together. And, and as a community, I think, that piece that's so critical and, and beautiful about Judy's house is that it's community-based, that it's in a, it's in a house. Mm-hmm. It, feels, it feels like you're going to a friend's house was what Brian mm-hmm. and I really wanted it to feel like when they came to Judy's house. We have a Which it very much does. Thank you. Yes. I know you, you were there recently. It's a, um, it's always been a beautiful and, and warm environment. And then we not only have our terrific clinical staff, but we have these um, devoted volunteers who help companion the kids. They feed them a meal. The whole family gets a meal when they wow. come. So they're supported in that way. So it's really, in addition to the groups, the grief groups that they participate in um, for that connection with other people who've had someone die, people mm-hmm. their own age, because we do break them into age groups and um, with people who have had similar kinds of death losses. Um, But they also, they, they feel like it is, they're a part of this community and the people who are there to support them um, have that sense of being a part of this, this community, this family, which um, we just, we're so grateful that Denver and, and the Denver metro area has really embraced this concept and really helped us create what we think of as a proof of concept for every community. We would like every community to have a, a center that can meet um, the comprehensive needs of children and families like we've been able to do uh, for the last 20 years. 20 years. And in your experience, I mean, I know everybody handles these situations differently, but obviously, but in your experience, do people have a difficult time asking for the kind of help that you can provide? 
Well, it's a great question. I think, I think many people in general have a hard time asking for help. I know I'm a psychologist and, and so a caregiver by profession and a mother, I'm probably one of the worst categories for asking for help, right? We caregivers yeah. have a hard time receiving care. What we've tried to do, because um, we know that, that seeking behavioral health care is often associated with stigma and um, you know, fear around mm-hmm. um, just asking for help. That's part of why we have made it such an easy door to walk through. It's, it's free of cost, as you said, but we also don't require that you have a diagnosis, a psychiatric diagnosis to receive care, which so many oh, that's awesome. do right. require that. We want it to be um, based on what the family is feeling they need. So if they um, are seeking support, and like I said, it's mostly groups um, where they can be with others like who've had similar experiences to them in the same age. But we also offer individual therapy and family um, counseling as well for those who have more intensive needs. So we really work hard to make it easy. We don't charge for any of those services. So we money is not the factor here. Um, thank goodness due to philanthropic support. Um, but then we tailor services to their individualized needs, which I feel is so essential for um, really um, giving them the space to to grieve in the ways that, that they um, need to grieve and to find healing that is um, really specific to, to their family and their culture and their, um, their own path. So we really believe in, in that collective wisdom of the group and the community, but also that it's so unique and that we are yeah. there to, to be there for them in, in what they need. Well, and in, in some of the nonprofits, Judy's House being one of them that I've seen be so successful, one of the reasons for that success is creating really shallow entry points and, and taking away those barriers for people to make that first step. Was that something that was intentional from the start? It was, you know, Brian, Brian um, is very open and this founding this organization together and, um, and, and learning together about um, what kinds of supports are helpful for grieving children and families, I think was part of Brian's healing process. And he talks uh, very eloquently about how as a 12 year old, when his mom died, mm-hmm. he, um, he was taken to a counselor, you know, his, his, his dad did a great job of mm-hmm. trying to make sure all of his needs are met. He, you know, had a schedule for his breakfast so that he sure. had a routine, he, you know, he was there for him in so many important ways, but he, you know, he saw a counselor briefly who said, you know, who, who ascribed to the stages of grief, which we now know, you know, grief is not mm-hmm. in orderly timelined um, stages, but, you know, she basically said, you'll feel this way for this long, this way for this long and this way, and then you'll be done. You know, and this is kind of a, a right. It's kind okay. of hopeful thinking that we sometimes have that grief will be short-lived or, you know, we don't often recognize that it's a lifelong journey. And so for him, you know, being that kid and thinking of all of these kids that he wanted to help have a, a different kind of path, help have a safe place where, where they weren't um, made to feel that they were grieving in the wrong way or that anything that they were experiencing was, um, was something to be Ashamed, ashamed of. Yeah, uh, really, that was so important to him that it was that kind of a, a home-like environment. And we had seen um, some examples around the country of that with peer support. And so we started that way, but then really quickly realized we needed for the amount of trauma and um, distress and complications that our families were experiencing, we really needed to staff up. So we really yeah. quickly grew our clinical team to be able to um, incorporate 
peer support, but also have that, that um, expert clinical support um, wrapped around families as well. So it's, it's both. It's that yeah. continuum of care that we feel is so critical for meeting people where they are when, when they seek the support. So um, very intentional and the new house will, it will not be eight, you know, it will not be over a hundred years old <laughs> like the <laughs> that we've been in, but it will be um, purpose built and um, still looks like a house. It's 26,000 square feet, but we are really careful to make sure it looks like a house with a wraparound uh-huh. porch and an easy door to walk through, filled with light, filled with um, a warm energy that we will um, that we will we will take that spirit of place from our current Judy's house to this new house, and uh, and we're excited to to have more room for more sure. families because unfortunately the need continues to grow and you can imagine that after right i mean through a global pandemic where um some millions have died and um already before the pandemic um childhood bereavement was an issue that was not fully understood we actually through JAG Institute, developed a childhood bereavement estimation model just to wrap our arms around how many kids. This year, when we ran those numbers, it was one in 13 children. One in 13. And the U.S. will experience the death of a parent or sibling before the age of 18. So that's, in the United States, more than 5.6 million children. And people are usually blown away by that. It more that it's, it's many more than that when you reach up to the age of 25, that which wow. we serve. But it's it's... It's going, it has gone up, it, it will continue to go up as we are able to digest the amount of losses we experienced yeah. due to COVID, but people who weren't seeking care during COVID for things like diabetes, yeah. suicide and overdose deaths, which have gone up for gun violence deaths, which have gone yeah. up as well. So it's an issue that unfortunately is never going to go away, right. but thankfully we know how to support kids and families when they are experiencing this. And so we're excited to be growing to this place of, you know, having a larger capacity to serve the Metro Denver area with direct service, but for JAG Institute to continue to get our data and our research and our education out so that, um, there's just more awareness around these needs and we're a more grief informed, not only community, but grief informed country. Yeah. Well, and that's striking. You know, my daughter's a fourth grade teacher, I think. So two kids in her class next year, one out of 13. So there'll be two kids in her class. It's, it's striking, but talk to us a little bit, you, you know, what you guys do with the grief and loss counseling. And when you started Judy's house, um, and it was so groundbreaking at the time and, and still is, but it really allowed you to learn from the work you were doing every day and pass that on through the JAG Institute and the comprehensive grief care model. So talk to us about how that kind of evolved with, Hey, we're doing this every day. We're learning right. and we got stuff we can share. So, um, so Brian, as you know, was it was playing football when we when we met and um i joke that he maybe married me for my degree because <laughs> he knew he wanted to do something for children who were grieving in in mm-hmm. ways that, that he had he wanted to do that for them but um he married a nerd who ah. and um and when actually when he first asked me on our first date uh, 20 some years ago, um, you know, if you could do anything for kids, what would you do? What was striking to me was that, um, as I talked with him about 
the work I was doing with traumatized youth in other settings and, and that desire to have a safe, comfortable place, an old house where they could come and get all their needs met because that was so lacking in our behavioral health care system. I was talking about trauma in general and he, and he said, well, what's available for kids like me? And that was striking to me because when I went to go do research on it, I saw that there was just so little out there. And so, and very little research to draw on to understand what are best practices, what, what are effective interventions. And so we saw this as an opportunity, a way that we could be the tide that raises all boats, basically, in the, in the country right. by investing in research and education so that instead of having Judy's houses all over the country and, and the expense of bricks and mortar, we knew how expensive that was. Mm-hmm. We continue to learn how expensive that is. Um, we knew that we could invest in that and help others all around the country. So, you know, bottom, you know, first and foremost, we wanted to understand the needs of our families that we were serving. Mm-hmm. And that was um, so helpful to shaping pathfinders and connections in our, our programs that we've been providing and evaluating for all of these years to make sure we're, we're meeting the needs of the families, but then to be able to share that feels so satisfying. And, um, you know, the mission and the vision is that no child should, should have to grieve alone. And so right. we're going to stop with Denver alone. We knew that we needed to spread throughout Colorado and throughout the country in terms of sharing what we're learning. Well, salute for having that vision, because I think a lot of nonprofits, and I'm guilty of this as well, you get so tunneled vision into your mission and accomplishing your goals that you don't really do those things like, let's collect data. What are we doing well? What can we share? So that that's awesome. And I also have always thought it was such a God wink that the two of you connected. It had to be one of those things. I always envision your first day, each of you going, me too. Me too. So it's just awesome that you came. Do you remember ever having one of those kind of, hey, I really think we're onto something here moments when you were talking about this or just getting going? Oh my gosh. Um, yes. I love your, your God wink. That's adorable. <laughs> um, I do. I do think that there, that we were meant to meet and um, I, I, I feel so connected to Judy, his mom, because I feel like it's, it's sure. And so um, such a wonderful tie to her to have this life's work mm-hmm. come out of our, our love story, but yep. their love story first and foremost, um, the very first night, that we held groups at the very first Judy's house, which was a teeny version of the current one. We actually um, got the, <laughs> the encouragement we needed to continue to do this for, for 20 years and, and, you know, hundred years, because the very first child that went through our programs um, came back that first night after we had um, had our groups and had everyone leave and on his own volition, Nobody had mentioned to him that, you know, he probably knew services were free, but we never ask our clients for donations directly, but he um, had gone back to his piggy bank and he came back and asked for, Oh my gosh. Mr. Greasy, Cause Brian was a volunteer in his group. It was just, a, we were a bunch of volunteers and, mm-hmm. and one or two staff members at that time. And he held out his little fist and he had a crumpled dollar bill. And he said, this is for cancer research because I know your mom died of cancer. And then he held out his other hand and he said, and this is for Judy's house. And oh, I mean, there was not, not a drive. works. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But for Brian and I, I mean, we were you know 27. We were so young. Right. We didn't know what we were doing, but it was just crystal clear in that moment that this was what we were supposed to be doing with our lives and, and to support the community 
And so, you know, we think of him often and, um, and wonder what he's doing. So many of our kids do come back. They come back to volunteer when they're older, they come back, um, to, which is probably the best testimony uh, that it's working, right? It's it's amazing to have them come back to volunteer. We've, we've had people come back to intern who decided to become grief counselors. We've had people who've worked at the organization after going through our programs as a child, when you've been around for 20 years, you get to see that kind of trajectory and, and, um, and, and, you know, post-traumatic growth or, you know, just that, that, that piece of meaning making of their loss that then has gone on to Mm -hmm. inspire their life's work. And that is the greatest Testament. And we're just feel so grateful to, to the courageous families, over 12,000 children and caregivers who have come through. We're we're grateful for for being a part of that history and a part of our future. Wow. Well, you touched on a little bit. I'm sure it's going to be super bittersweet to leave the Judy's house that you've been in since 2005, but tell me what, what kind of a game changer is the new facility going to be for the organization? Oh gosh. So there's so many aspects. I mean, from a super practical standpoint, the reason we're moving is because the current location you know, there are huge apartment buildings coming up all around us and there's no place to park. And so that's, again, a barrier to to care that um, in getting downtown is more and more difficult. And so to be in a more accessible location with our own parking lot, to have a physically accessible building that has an elevator and ramp and and all, you know, that is, like I said, purpose-built and tailored to the specific and unique programs that we have is a huge game changer in terms of the experience um, of the families. We have beautiful outdoor gardens and views of the mountains that I think will be so hope inspiring. And, um, and then, you know, I, I think just even being in communities that have more children and families surrounding them, this, you know, the new house, um, is you know right on the line between Central Park and Aurora, and um, right near Stanley Marketplace, and so it's great, surrounded great by neighborhoods and schools and community centers and parks, and so it just feels more like that you know family, community centered um, beacon of hope for children and families, and I look forward to that whole community and beyond because people do travel long distances to come to connect with people there. We've had people come from the, from the mountains and the plains, even to, to come to Judy's house, even from out of state at times, but which shouldn't be right. That's why we're other communities to have services farther away, but it will be a game changer for that. We'll also be able to, you know, host community gatherings and volunteer opportunities. And, um, you know, we, we rely on fundraisers. So we will be so excited to be able to bring our incredibly generous donors and supporters to the actual place where we're providing care so they can see it in action and be a part of it and, and have um, fun events. We have some really fun events. Our quarterback club is a really yep. fun um, yep. gathering of community leaders and supporters. So it's, it's a game changer on, on so many levels and, and nationally for dragons to, to have a place where people can come for trainings. We have large, large training and gathering spaces now where we can hold larger onsite trainings um, and education. So that will be um, a game changer as well. So this is almost becoming ground zero for this type of work across the country. So congratulations on that. But think back to you're a a clinical psychologist, you've earned your PhD, all of a sudden this organization blows up. 
And you find yourself now where you're in a leadership role where you've obviously embraced it, but you're not probably practicing as much or being with clients as much, but now you're managing staff and you're having to deal with audits and you're trying to figure out fundraising and all this other stuff. What are some of the bedrock leadership principles that you leaned on to really propel the organization and, and fill this, this leadership position that you found yourself in? You know, it's, it's a great question. And, and Brian and I, of course, had no training in nonprofit development and management um, and found ourselves in lots of different roles over the years right. for the organization, um, chairing the board and serving on the board. And, and um, you know, for me, it was developing the programs and serving as CEO for all those mm-hmm. years. Um, we learned on the spot and, and in, you know, in process. Um, and I think for us, it has always been most important that, um, that we honor all of the people involved and that we, that we did make it a safe place for the staff, the trainees, the families we were serving, the board members to really be um, vulnerable you know, at a grief center, we're very aware of the need to, to honor the whole person and, and really respect what brings them to this work. Most people come into this work for a reason, you know, and they're, we want to honor that and respect that. Um, the, the financial side of it was a learning curve for me. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful that I um, was able to, um, we, we, right from the beginning, Brian was really good about bringing in community leaders, business leaders, nonprofit leaders. You remember way back then with Gold yep. Crown, like it is, it was, um, that was a gift that he was able to kind of use his platform as an NFL quarterback, a Broncos quarterback. Right. You, I mean, he literally went into a room with a bunch of business leaders at the, um, at the chamber and put on his little tape recorder and, and asked them every question he could think of, you know, before we even opened our door. So, you know, I, I've just admired that about him that, that he took this on and wanted to learn that side of it. And then I learned it alongside him, all of these, these 20 years, um, and just, I think for both of us, it's that piece of checking your ego at the door like this. We were very um, careful to avoid what they call it founder syndrome, you know, that yeah. piece needing to hold on so tightly that we didn't allow others to grow as leaders. And we both knew, even though we were in our twenties, when we started it, that it needed to be something that was shared by other leaders in the community, by other you know, counselors and researchers and, and just all of the staff that they would, and the, and their supporters and our board members would hold it with us rather than us holding on too tightly and not sharing that leadership. So me handing off to um, Jessica Malin Mayo, our CEO, and, and Mickey Burns, our amazing chief clinical officer, was just this really important step towards sustainability, as is the house, as is continuing to diversify yeah. revenue and not, you know, rely on funds from from just one um, one source. Like we've been working towards that long term sustainability in all of those capacities since we started twenty years ago, but really in earnest in these in these last few years of just really knowing that it's the right time for it to graduate to this larger organization that is held by so many, and we're so excited about that it's it's kind of a young adult right at 20 um, <laughs> our first 
firstborn born on our first yeah. day out of wedlock. <laughs> but, um, but now it, it feels like so much more than that. It's, it's, it, you know, as Brian always says, it's not a charity. It is a critical, it's a critical public health service. Yeah. And we want and, everybody to see it that way and, and hold that and feel proud of having this in their own backyard here in Colorado. Um, so Totally. And I want to, for anybody that's listening, especially nonprofit leaders, I want to go back just a second to stress something that you said. And that is, you know, it was always important to honor the people that you're working with and, and to respect. And to me that the way you do that, you have to be a really good communicator to do that. So I think communication skills are sometimes overlooked and the, and the, the person to person human interaction piece sometimes is undervalued. Mm -hmm. And I love that you've touched on that because that's, that I think has been a super critical part of your success. No, absolutely. Communication. Um, so key and, and relationships, this whole organization is about relationships, Ah. relationships amongst our team, our relationships with the broader community, our partners. We've had such an incredible partnership with schools throughout all of these years, uh, but other youth serving agencies as well. And if we're not communicating clearly with each other about our, our goals and being on the same page about how to take things forward, then, um, then that's when I think we have issues. So that's, I think you're Completely. absolutely right. And easy, easier said than done. But if you could go back and give 20 years ago, Brooke, any advice, what would it be? Ooh, breathe more. <laughs> I think, um, and anyone who's listening, who is, has started an organization or is running an organization knows, you know, when it's something as, as compelling, which anything worth doing you know, of this magnitude is, is super compelling and, and it can lead you to a place of, um, caring so much that you're always working, that you're always, yeah. it, that you, you know, there's, there's nonprofits are, are that way, right. That there's always, and how do you not take it home? Well, you know, I, I can't say I didn't. I mean, yeah. I think for a lot of those years I was, um, you know, bringing home work, tucking the kids in at bed and then staying up late working. And, and that was fine when I was younger, but it, but it does take its toll. I actually talk with young leaders a lot about, um, that, that this can be your life's work without being a life of only work. We have to be so careful that when you're doing something as compelling, I need to write that down. That's, that's a, that's a plaque that needs to be made right there. That's awesome. I'll make you a t-shirt, Jay. No, make me I, a t-shirt. I, I, totally. I was, I was guilty of that, that it became, it became, um, so much of, and, and for Brian and I, since we were doing it together and it really, mm-hmm. his mom and it's, and it really is, um, yeah, heavy work that we, that we just know needs to be done. We had to be careful about that. And we had yeah. to put down some guidelines around not talking about it at the dinner table, for instance, you know, like just yeah. find space for boundaries, the yeah. of you and, and of your family and your friends. And, um, because that, that's, that is a risk. It's also a, a gift. I mean, when I look at the, the friends who now feel like family that we have gained through this work, it, it, it bleeds, you know, the, the yeah. organization, the work we do. There's no such thing as work-life life. balance. We, right. we love it. We love that, but it is really, really important that we, like I said, take care of ourselves and each other and, and, and have those, those breaks from the work. Well, I think back to when Brian started this journey, you know, he's the, the Broncos 
Pro Bowl QB, and there is no job position in this city that is more scrutinized mm-hmm. than that one. I mean, I, I, there's a handful of guys that know what that that is, and Brian's one of them. It's been really fun to watch from afar his transformation from this pro athlete to really a man who's truly fulfilling his life calling. How would, as somebody who's seen it up close as his life partner and his partner in this organization, how would you describe his, his evolution over the years? Mm. Uh, I, I can think back to when I first met him and, and you, you remember him too, with the media and he, you know, he, he was pretty guarded and close pretty guarded. and, and, and really, um, you know, when we'd go out on dates and be hat down, I know, hope nobody knows, notices me. Yeah. And, and, and I think Judy's house really helped him. I mean, I remember from the very first time he sat in a group of kids, just seeing that light come on, like, oh, we're all sitting here and we're going to talk about the person in our life that died. And that's okay to do and to talk about feelings and to be vulnerable. And so, I think it opened him up over the course of the 20 years, just in beautiful ways. I watch him now when he is, is talking with other people and it's, it's not, awesome. o- not only to raise support, because obviously we do that all the time mm-hmm. because the work needs support of the community. But when he's talking to other kids or other adults who have experienced a death loss, I just, I um, am so proud of him and his growth and his journey and, and how he every day honors his, his mom's memory, but also honors um, every other family who has experienced a loss. And um, so, and I, I do think now that he's um, it's, it's ironic that he was in the media for 13 years after his yeah. difficulty with, you know, talking with the media and as a player, but now as a coach, I think all of the skills he developed as we were, you know, help, you know, growing this organization and, and, um, and, and working in those, those management and chair roles. Um, he now gets to take that kind of, um, leadership skill and that mm-hmm. mentoring of younger people and, yep. and transfer that to these young quarterbacks who I think are so lucky to have. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. It's, that. it's, um, it's really fun being at your event the other night when he's up there speaking, you're just watching. And I can't help but think back to those days when every single word he said would be dissected by a columnist or a, a radio guy or whatever, but he's up there, he's comfortable, he's passionate. And I'm thinking this is a man in full right here. And it's been, oh, it's been yeah. so fun to watch. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I agree. I agree. So I, I like to wrap these up with what I call the fab four. So I got four last questions and then I'll let you get back to your life. But the first one is what is something you will listen to read or watch today? Ooh, listen to read or watch today. Uh, let's see my daughter playing piano. Ah, uh, wow. That's fantastic. And hopefully she'll sing as well because that would just make my day if she'd sing along to the piano. <laughs> awesome. So who is a role model for you and who's been a role model or somebody who's really inspired you to do this, this work that you do? Mm. My mentor in graduate school, Dr. Louise Silvern, um, has been the most incredible mentor in my life. Um, a selfless devotion to helping children and families who've experienced trauma, loss, and adversity. She has devoted herself to that as a practitioner and as a researcher and, and an academic and, and teacher. So I will forever be grateful to her. She also 
um, did our, uh, was our principal investigator for our research at Judy's house for about a decade. So no she, kidding. she contributed so incredibly to that work. So what a cool way to keep that connection. Mm-hmm. So other than Judy's house, what's an organization out there doing work that you really admire? Oh my gosh. There are so many that's hard to, to even point at one. I've always been a huge fan of boys and girls club. Um, and I'm, I'm serving on the, um, Denver public schools foundation board right now, which mm-hmm. I just, um, I love what, what we're able to do there because, um, our kids are DPS students. And I think of public education as, just such a critical part of a healthy community. And so to be able to contribute to whole child development through that foundation um, feels incredibly meaningful and and really wraps around um, (laughs) all of the things I care so much about in this, in this community and, and in the time that we have to give back. Awesome. So the last one is if somebody wants to learn more about Judy's house or support or volunteer, how do they find you? Great question. Our website, uh, judyshouse.org, and that's J-U-D-I-S house.org, um, has everything you could possibly need. Um, you could, if you want to educate yourself about bereavement and about um, resources, there are um, resources. There's a lot of stuff education. on there. Definitely lots of opportunities to volunteer and to support Financially, if that's something that you are interested in doing, um, we are always grateful for every way that people share their time and their talents and their treasures so that we can continue to do this work um, that, that needs to be continued for generations to come. So it thank does you for, for generations. Directing, directing people there. Um, and and please reach out to any of our staff if you have questions and, and would like to, to be more involved. I will put that all in the show notes. Brooke, we're grateful for you being with us. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for listening to the inspiring story of how the Greasies built Judy's house and the great work the organization does supporting children and families. Check the show notes for contact information for Judy's house and the JAG Institute. If you're interested in how I might be able to bolster your efforts and help you achieve your goals, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can find me at makingourworldbetter.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd subscribe and leave us a review. Until next time, I hope you're inspired to find a way to make our world better. Our world better.